morning. How about I pray for us? Father, we come here from different backgrounds, experiences, walks of life. Uh, Even our days and weeks past have been so different from one another, and yet you promised to speak to us, and so you speak to us from your word. And so we ask, Father, that you would come and do that here. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be in this place, ministering to the hearts of each and every one of us. As we look at your word, your infallible word together, give me the right words to speak, Father, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I wonder what your sense of justice is. Do some things uh, bother you more than other things? Does murder bother you? What about abortion? Does gambling bother you? Or is it certain types of crimes? Does gun crime bother you? What about terrorism? Uh, Are you uh, outraged over issues on the environment? Does littering upset you or industrial pollution? Are, Are there things in your own life that bother you? Things that you have done or said in the past that set you on edge? Uh, 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 things that you beat yourself up over and over again, unresolved things. What punishment do these things deserve? What punishment do these people deserve? Are you hard on other people? I remember somebody once cut me off in traffic, and I thought, that person needs to go to jail forever. And then I cut in on someone, but it was okay because I waved at them. This morning, we're looking at the aftermath of this devastation that David has caused. King David, who we've been following for, uh, well, now 14 weeks, and um, David, that shepherd boy turned giant killer. David, uh, the one who was hated by Saul but loved by Jonathan. David, who had been promised that his house will be established forever and protected. David, who has made willful choices and has buried himself deeper and deeper in sin. And here we are, about nine months after this affair with Bathsheba, And after he has killed Uriah, her husband. And we are asking the question, where is the justice? What does he deserve? Does he deserve punishment? But before we look at chapter 12, we notice that chapter 11 has some really interesting themes. First... God is not mentioned until the very last verse. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. We also notice that there's a lot of sending going on. 
David sent someone to find out about her. David sent messengers to her. Bathsheba sent word to David that she was pregnant. David sent word to Joab to have Uriah sent home. David sent Uriah with a note to have Joab put him in the front line. The word occurs 12 times in chapter 11. Then in chapter 12, the Lord sends. The Lord sends Nathan to David. And we want to know what the message will be. Will all that was promised now be taken away from David? Will David have to face the consequences for what he has done? Will God let him off the hook? Well, Nathan comes in and he tells David a story. And maybe David is thinking that it's an event that requires his judicial ruling because he is king now and he makes judgments. And so Nathan tells this story of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has all this sheep and cattle. And the poor man has nothing except this one little ewe lamb. It was like a daughter to him. Then a traveler comes in to visit the rich man. And rather than offer one of his own animals as sacrifice to make meat for the meal, the rich man takes this poor man's little lamb, the one lamb. It's terrible, right? And so King David hears this and he rages at this point. He's burning with anger. What an injustice. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay four times over because of what he did is so terrible and he had no pity. Then Nathan says to David, you are the man, David. You are the man. This wasn't a case for him to judge. It was a mirror reflecting his own wickedness. This wasn't an opportunity for the king to rule. It was a picture of how terribly he had sinned. It wasn't a chance for David to stand over in a position of authority. It was a spotlight on his failing. It wasn't even involving unknown people. It was his own situation staring him back in the face. You are the man. And David took the bait. And the truth he perhaps thought he had covered up was revealed. The floodlights, the switch for the floodlights has come on and there is all of David's horrible, terrible situation laid bare. And how does God deal with it? He doesn't send Nathan to start berating David. You idiot, you wicked man. You commit adultery and then murder. How could you? No. He graciously allows David's own sense of justice to come through. And gently and graciously, God shatters David. It shatters him because the story playing out before him becomes that mirror. And his anger and rage against this unnamed man must be, in David's view, worked out on himself now. 
And what's crazy here is David's completely lopsided view of justice. The man in the story has not killed a person. He has not committed adultery. He's stolen an animal. The law would never require a human life for a theft. It is an absolute, complete overreaction to the story. The penalty would have been the fourfold payback, but not a life. But you see, what David did in his adultery and his murder did not require one death penalty, but two. Death for the adultery with Bathsheba and death for the murder of Uriah. But David wants to live, and yet he wants to issue a death penalty on a thief. But we do this too, don't we? We want grace and mercy for us, and we want justice and punishment for those who wrong us or anyone who is not us. I want to take a minute here to talk about the importance of accountability with one another. I think uh, Rand talked about this last week a little bit, but I think the point can certainly be made from this passage. We, we all need that one or two people in our lives uh, uh, who, who can be like this, who can speak these truths. Now, I'm not saying we need to all go around judging everything about one another. This will qu- quickly become a very difficult church to be a part of if that happens. No, I'm talking about that one-to-one relationship or that little group of three with people who are willing to ask that hard question of you. Uh, I'm talking about that friend who will be honest with you, who will uh, search the scriptures with you, uh, who will fight in prayer with you. I know those relationships don't just form in a vacuum. They take time to develop But when they do happen, they will serve you so well. So can I encourage you to be praying for a person like that if you don't already have something like that? Maybe it's somebody in the Bible study that you're in, or maybe it's somebody at work, another Christian at work, whatever form it may take. Someone who has that permission to speak openly and honestly with you like Nathan is doing with David. You know, I've never felt more rooted or grounded than when I had one or two guys who, when I was going through a hard time, I could go to them, or if I needed a a kick in the pants myself. In fact, I'll tell you of a situation. I went to a a football game from when I went to Auburn. This was after I had graduated. I went with a, a friend who was a good friend and sort of one of these accountability friends, and we were playing in a tight game with uh, one of our rival schools. And there was this fan that was sitting in our section, and he, you know, every time his school scored, he would turn around and yell and cheer and you know things that fans do. And the game went on and on like this, and then finally we kicked a game-winning field goal right at the end. And I had had enough of this guy. And I never said anything the whole game, but right when, those, when that ball went through those uprights, I completely lost my self-control. And I was yelling in this guy's ear face. I wanted to rub it in so bad. Now, I had not played one second of that game. I had not coached in that game. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. And anyway, no one said anything to me until we got in the car. And then my friend sort of said, 
why did you yell at that guy like that? I had regretted it the second that I did it. I knew it was wrong, but I sort of thought, you know what? It was the heat of the moment. It was a, it was a big game. I, you know, it's, it's fine. But this went far beyond fandom and cheering. My friend saw an ugly side of me, and he called me out on it. How good it is to have someone who will do that. So let me encourage you again. Uh, to be thinking and praying for a person like that. Now back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm sticking with it. <clears throat> Whatever Donald Trump says. Now look at what Nathan says to, as God issues his judgment. The Lord says, I anointed you king over Israel And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. It's not like David is deprived. It's not like David was lacking. All he had and all that he was had been a gift from God. And yet apparently... It wasn't enough in David's eyes. And so, verse 9, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You broke the commandments, coveting, adultery, murder, and you despised the word of the Lord. Now, this indictment doesn't begin with a list of the crimes, but rather with the evil heart that the crimes committed. In David's heart, he despised the promise of God and he despised the grace of God. That's a harsh word, despised. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, you have God's judgment on the house of Eli because his sons despised the Lord. Goliath despised the armies of the Lord and David Michal despised David when she saw him dancing before the Lord, and now David has been told he has despised the Lord and his word. When we sin, we despise the Lord and his word. We don't often think of it that way. But when I choose not God, I despise his word in that moment. I love God. I love his word. But when I sin, I am saying, I choose something other than you. I don't think your word has value in this at this point. And the crime is the evidence. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. What is David's crime? Murder. And adultery. And will God merely let David off the hook? No, because sin has consequences. So, what are the consequences? The sword will never depart from your house. It fits the crime. He used the sword to kill Uriah, and the fact that it's against the house of David now. Uh, fits how David despised the word of the Lord. And the word was applied to David's line, his dynasty. Second crime, adultery. 
Then the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight before all Israel. I'm reading the NIV version if you're lost. Again, the punishment fitting the crime, except that what David did in hiding with Bathsheba, this will now happen in the open before all Israel. The one who is close to you ends up being David's son, Absalom. And from this moment, David's house will be in total chaos and disarray. His daughter will be raped by her half-brother in the very next chapter. And David will pay the fourfold payment that he demanded the rich man pay the poor man from Nathan's story. He will lose the unnamed child, he will lose his son Absalom, he will lose his son Adonijah, and he will lose his son Amnon. Then, David, after months of covering up this horrible situation and sitting on it, he's broken. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. One of the commentators makes note that we should be slow to give credit to David for his response. This man, after all this time, after all this damage that he had done, after showing no remorse at all, was at last broken by the word of the Lord. The wonder is that the word of the Lord could bring about this response in him because nothing else could. Couldn't gin it up from himself. Couldn't bring it out of his own goodness. Only the word of the Lord could do this. Then we read of the scandal of the grace of God. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Because although David's punishment for the rich man in the story was wrong and uneven, it was the one that David deserved for what he did. And so we are left to ask, how is it possible, how is it right that God would Take away the sin of David. He has no excuse. He knows the law better than anyone. And what he did was not harmless. People died. And yet the Lord who has seen it all, in whose eyes it was evil, sends Nathan to David to tell him his sin has been taken away. The taking away of David's sin meant that he would not bear the penalty that he deserved. You are not going to die. This did not mean that David's sin had no consequences, as we've just seen. What it means is that he won't die right now. And God has not rejected him as he had rejected Saul. But another consequence is that God takes the life of the child that was born to David in Bathsheba. It was as if the Lord laid on another the consequences of his sin. 
I do not understand why God does this. Why must the innocent pay for the guilty? What sin has this child committed? I don't always understand God's methods, but that does not minimize my view of him. Because it will be through another son of David, a completely innocent son who will die so that you and I can hear those words, you will not die. Your sins have been covered by the taking of the life of another. And you can therefore have eternal life with God, the Father and the Son, instead of eternal death separated from the Father and the Son and anything that is good. For it is only because of Jesus that you and I can live. Is that just? You and I, steeped in sin, we may not have committed adultery or murder like David, but we have rebelled against God every time we choose not Him. Every time we put ourselves on the throne of judgment to judge God and to judge others, every time we despise the Lord and His Word, for God is perfect and will accept nothing but perfect in His kingdom. And so we need a substitute. We need a sacrifice to cleanse us. We need a Savior to save us. And there's no amount of work that will do it. There's no amount of financial giving that will do it. There's no amount of seeking proper justice that will do it. And because we cannot do it on our own, and because we do not deserve it, we need grace. We need grace. We need God to show grace. How good that our God is a gracious God. And we see that in the way David handles the situation with the child. Here David's behavior it worries his servants. He won't eat, he won't sleep, he's inconsolable while the child is sick and finally the child dies. And the servants are scared to tell David, thinking if he was that bad when the child was alive, what will he do when we tell him he's passed? And so David asks what's happened. They tell him the child has died, and David gets up. He showers, he changes, he goes to the temple to pray, and then he eats a big meal. What has happened? The servants ask him, and David responds, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, David knows the character of his God. He pursues after the same God who has just leveled all of these terrible consequences against him. And yet David knows in whom he can place his trust, no matter the obstacle, no matter the situation. And when the verdict was made final, he went on with his day as if nothing had happened, trusting in the sovereignty and wisdom of his God. We then begin to see God restoring David. 
First, his household is restored. He marries Bathsheba. He has a son in Solomon, whom the Lord loves, continuing his line, which was promised. His kingdom is reestablished in the conquering of Rabbah. But you see, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. And that's what this section is showing us. It's a, it's a, a glimpse of what God is doing with his kingdom. It, it's a picture of restoration, but it's all still flawed. Every human effort falls short. All are hindered by sin, even the covenant king David. And so what does it do? puts a longing in our hearts for real and complete restoration. It puts the hunger in us to have a right and proper relationship with God one day. It makes us long for the king who will rule for eternity, the king who will not be hindered by sin, the king who rules with justice and mercy, the king who has total authority, the king who has total control, the king who does not bring shame. It makes us look to Jesus. The son of David who takes away the sins of the whole world. At the heart of David's restoration was forgiveness of sins. It's the same for us today. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And so I'll ask you what I asked at the beginning. What is your sense of justice? If you understand sin correctly and how terrible and destructive it is, then you begin to have a new understanding of true justice. When you understand grace and forgiveness of sin from that perspective, it shines all the brighter. It makes everything seem so dim. Oh, what a cost. Oh, what a blessing. Let's pray. Father, for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone, we give you thanks. Would you give us hearts that seek to confess sin and restore our broken relationship with you? We feel the weight of Nathan's words, you are the man when it comes to our sin. We also feel the freedom of the words, you will not die. When we consider the grace that has been poured out on us in Christ, 
May this give us new perspectives this week as we live and work. Father, that your word would dwell richly in us. That we would come back to the truth of the gospel over and over again, recognizing that cost that was paid, that price that was paid, so that we can be with you, so that we can be free to be called sons and daughters of God. For we pray this in Christ's name.